0: Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. A behavior analyst in the autism field must balance technical skills and data analysis with a compassionate partnership with families. Creating an environment where the family and and patient feel hurt is so important to create trust and ultimately effective care. So how do you teach compassion, active listening, and effective communication to behavior analysts and technicians? Well, this week, we welcome Christina Tenorilla to the podcast to discuss the importance of compassion in ABA and autism services and how to go about doing that. Christina is a board-certified behavior analyst based out of the Inland Empire region of California. She's passionate about the development of inclusive environments in education and the workplace as well as making sure families are set up for success. Christina, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi jeff thanks for having me
0: it's It's my pleasure, and I'm so glad that you can come on and talk about this issue because there's there is a lot of talk and i i would i would say oftentimes um misinformation in the field about a b a not having a personal side to it and i would I would argue that that might be bad a b a having <laughs> lacking that interpersonal connection but before we get there, can you just Tell me about how you fell into the field of autism services. And do you have a a personal connection? Do you have a a reason detra to be a clinician?
1: Um, actually, so I started working with students with disabilities since I was 16 years old. So I always loved the advocacy work that came with this. But when I worked in a group home during my um, undergraduate time, I had met uh, a BCBA. That was my first introduction kind of into the field. So started working uh, for an agency. And from the time that I had done some work in high school and the advocacy work with disabled individuals, just seeing that personal side to families, um, I I was always very connected to and always really enjoyed that piece as well, well. So
0: it sounds like having the chance to almost as a, as a late adolescent to already start getting your, your feet wet and understanding who, who it is that receives services or, or what the lifestyle is of a family when they're trying to juggle so much information Absolutely. all the time and how to empower the, those that were in the group home, that probably created so much perspective for you. So how do you, how do you see the world of autism and, and the, the abilities that could be coming from somebody who identifies as autistic?
1: I think that the past ten years, I've seen the the world of autism evolve. Like when I when I kind of first started, it was more working with individuals, for lack of a better word, with more that were more significantly impacted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've seen more of the evolution of the autism community um, within the past ten to fifteen years. So that's actually been really fascinating and and really cool to see that whole evolution of really truly the 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 spectrum really kind of form and um meeting more and more individuals who are neurodivergent and then have a place within this world so i i love that aspect definitely
0: yeah and with the diagnostics within autism is that it isn't just that first child you were describing that is um so profoundly impacted mm-hmm. by some of the limitations that autism might provide.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What you see now is such a broad scope where you got where you have a, a very, very diverse set of people, some with wonderful skills that are able to help teach you and I about the world around us on a regular basis because they have a perspective that we have not understood. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's the, the part that I really want to get into today, because that's where the compassion really has to, has to shine through, is that we took a science and now it's a practice of therapy. And mm-hmm. so what has been one of those challenges that you've seen with clinicians making that jump? of taking a purely data-driven field and turning it into one where empathy is important?
1: Well, I think it's really been within my own practice of really um, focusing on how I'm going to focus more on my uh, perspective-taking and interpersonal skills, but also really kind of the, um, I feel like the reform movement that's happening within the field right now of more and more first of all, more and more neurodivergent BCBAs are working in the field. Mm -hmm. So that whole perspective has been uh, so profound for me to listen to, you know, as, as, you know, an advocate and really an ally for individuals with disabilities. So definitely hearing more neurodivergent voices, particularly within applied behavior analysis, really listening to them and taking in, their advice and how we can expand this field and really make reform happen within the field. Um, That's really been uh, the biggest uh, thing for me.
0: Yeah. And you, I think you mentioned the word listening
1: there and, and it was, it was
0: on repeat and there's a good reason for that. I'm sure because in order to be compassionate and to understand the first thing that you have to do is listen. And I would imagine that could be listening to your to your patient who might be a child, or it could be an adult patient, or it could be listening to the family, listening to the community, listening to the broader community of those who are who are neurodiverse and mm-hmm. understanding all of that. So, with that listening, kind of the key and the, at the forefront of everything, what is practicing compassionate ABA?
1: Well, I'm going to steal from uh, Linda LeBlanc and Bridget Taylor, and I believe Melissa Sick. I think my, I might have just butchered her last name. They wrote a fantastic article really about compassion, practicing compassion within the field. And they really, I, I loved their definition, which was really taking your interpersonal skills and balancing your technical skills. And I feel like First of all, practicing compassion is just a balance in general, right? But if you look at practicing compassion at ABA, it truly is taking the perspective-taking, the interpersonal skills, the relationship-building, and balancing it all with the the science of applied behavior analysis. I think the f- most important thing is the perspective-taking of the family. I think that mm-hmm. really when you work in the home, you really see what families are living every single day. You're there for two, three, four, five hours, um, but this is their life completely. Mm -hmm. Understanding what families are going through, that is um, the most important piece before you come in really with the science.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that you hit on it is that interpersonal ability to build the trust to really get in deep and understand what it is, what's driving, what is the, where's the passion of the family? What are the most important things for them? So it, could you paint this picture for us? Is that, what is it right now um, for a family of a child with uh, with autism? What is it that, that that family is going through? I would imagine just uh, A, understanding there's something different as a parent. There's red flags. Like that makes me nervous mm-hmm. getting a diagnosis. Now I'm even more nervous having somebody in my house for 30 hours. I mean, can you paint that picture? Can you tell me what that's like for your families?
1: Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'll paint one particular picture with a, a family that I've, I worked with um, several, several years ago. I worked with their son who was significantly impacted um, And for them, you know, it was, he had a younger sister and uh, his father was going to school full time. Uh, Mother was staying at home, not because she wanted to, but because she had to, right? Because um, childcare is an issue and schooling is an issue. And and really seeing just the day-to-day life for them that like going to the grocery store to go grocery shopping isn't it's a it's a thing right um planning family vacations it's a thing it's 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 really taking I think being a parent is stressful enough period with a typical developing child I I have a young daughter I've already I've really kind of seen this that it's hard being a parent truly is one of the hardest things in the world um but add on top of societal pressure uh, feeling like you're being judged because your child might be different um, child care who's going to watch your child you can't necessarily just trust anybody and then trying to make a better life as a parent for your family and how that's a lot harder too and so um, just really seeing that perspective it changed a lot for me because I really saw that it's it's not easy you know just. Mm-hmm for his mother to like, go get a job, you know, because it's like, well, who's going to watch their son? or for the sister who was typical developing, you know, it's, it's hard because I think we don't really, we don't really talk a lot about um, siblings and what they experience having um, a sibling who um, is autistic or disabled. And so um, really just seeing that dynamic, but then at the heart of it, truly one of the best families in the world. Like there's a spirit within the families as well Mm -hmm. that I just feel like can't be overstated of how amazing that is, you know? Yeah. But I have,
0: I've heard that so many times is that, uh, having, having a child who,
1: maybe makes you kind of think
0: outside the box or Correct. has a perspective that's slightly different or skills that are different. Yes, It actually, it, it makes your life more enriched yeah. and more uh, enjoyable over time, but it's getting to that point. And I guess that's where, where my questions would then start leading to and is we know in, in a lot of the research with autism is that, um, especially for those impacted um, uh, pretty severely is that the best prognosis is getting consistency is getting intensive service is getting that continuity of care. But at the same time, is that growth and catching up to that peer set is not a fast process. It's mm-hmm. slow. Mm-hmm. So, How do you reassure a parent? How do you demonstrate that compassion with still trying to help support best case kind of prognosis for quickest treatment. And how does that balancing act work?
1: I mean, I think that I'm, uh, I'm a little different in the sense of um, maybe other BCBAs where I'm not really look, I want to look at what the priorities are for the family. What's your priority? What can we work for? Uh, What can we work on? Um, Of course we have a a curriculum that kind of drives um, intervention, um, but i really it 's it 's almost like what good is implementing certain goals if it 's not meaningful to the family and to the patient right so I really look more towards what 's meaningful for you and for um, the child patient adolescent, whoever it may be, and starting there and I think sometimes when I think sometimes when we focus on like Timelines and all of those things. I think we get lost within the meaningfulness of intervention and therapy. So, I try and really stick more towards that when I'm working with families. Is what's meaningful for you, and how can we accomplish this? And really using more of the um, that motivational piece of like, mm-hmm. if it's meaningful for you, I want to help you. How can I help you? Uh, aspect of where I'm coming from um, versus more of like, and I'm not saying all BCBs do this, but instead of so much focusing on like, oh, well, we need to be consistent and we need to meet this and this and this and data shows. And it's more about how can I help you and how is this going to be meaningful within session? Because if parents feel burnout or fatigue, they're not going to continue. So Mm -hmm. I think sometimes if we pivot the conversation more of that way of what's meaningful and what you want the outcomes to be, then I think that that kind of helps with the fatigue because intervention can can be a fatigue sometimes for families, you know?
0: Is, is is it fair to say that some of the flexibility of a good ABA program, of uh, kind of making it more naturalized and utilizing the understanding of the ecology of the family and their values, their importance, and making sure the goals match is that there's ways to integrate treatment So that treatment doesn't really feel like it's ongoing, both for the family and for the child all the time.
1: Yeah. I feel like you put that very eloquently that, yes, I I feel like that's really adopting more of that cultural competency within the family that you're working with as well. Um, And yes, I'm a big proponent of that. Uh, That is really what's going to be is what's going to drive your outcomes to be more meaningful and effective. In my opinion, you know, Um, not everyone always agrees with that, um, but definitely with the families I, I've worked with in the past, that's that's the angle that I take it. And, and I feel like the field is moving more in that cultural competency and being flexible within treatment and understanding the, the family's needs.
0: Yeah, and I, and I would imagine that the trust factor is so important there, is that if somebody is listening to me, somebody is hearing what's important to me, and they're, tr- they're tailoring their treatment in a way where I feel valued, well, guess what I might end up doing is I might be more bought into the treatment plan. I, is that, is that what you've seen historically? Have you seen that with families? Most definitely.
1: Even with myself, I, if I go find a personal trainer and they're listening to me and they care about me and they say, and they don't harp on me because maybe I had too many tacos or I didn't, or I missed a workout, but they're listening to me. I'm more willing to show up for my, my sessions. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I have no doubt that it's the same with the families. And so the best is when they're happy and excited you're there. Right. So Mm -hmm. when they see you and I mean, and the families that never cancel right Too that's the other piece as well. Um, it's so, it's just, you, you want to make session where they're happy and, and so excited to see you, um, not just the patient, but, but the family as well. You know, I mean, I know we, we talk a little bit about the blurred lines, but my, you know, as far as like who you are when you're in the home, but it's, it's hard because sometimes parents do feel like you are part of the family, you know, Mm -hmm. you work with their child that, Uh, not a lot of people will work with, or, um, they hear a lot of words like deficits and, you know, severe problem behavior and and that's constantly being thrown at them. And so when you come in as a clinician and you're excited and you care for the well being of their child, they're going to adopt you like, like you're their family member, whether, no matter what you can say as far as relationships and all of those things go. But, um, but yeah.
0: So what What does, I mean, the deviation from, hey, this is my perfect goal set. This is exactly what I want my treatment session always to look like. What is the deviation of being able to bring the family in? What does that do to the outcome of the service? The, the willingness to maybe shift priorities, shift goals for the family's sake. What does that do for the overall outcome in your opinion? Um,
1: I think everything is worth a conversation with families as to why they feel like we sh- what's working and what's not working, what their apprehensions are. Yeah. Um, cause it goes back to listening. Parents want to be heard, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: patients that we work with want to be heard. And there's, I mean, that's it's, I look at our service as that it's a service. Like I am there to serve the client. And so yeah. If I don't listen, then it's it's not about my therapy. It's about mm-hmm. how I'm best serving the client.
0: Yeah. And and with a service that relies on longevity. It's not I'm going in and tomorrow or next week, I've already accomplished every goal. This is oftentimes for children, it's months, years long treatment, mm-hmm. is that you can burn a bridge by being so rigid. That maybe you can't get back where it's saying and understanding when do you give a little to be able to make up room on the back end because now the trust is there. So if you have a challenging skill, challenging behavior where you have to say, no, we need to go this route or else we're in trouble is that the family listens better.
1: Most definitely, and and I think that also, you know, a lot of the reform in applied behavior analysis is talking about that. Is talking about, you know, the rigidity is not where where we should be going. Um, It really should be because, at the end of the day, that yes, this is a science that transformed into an intervention, um, but it's therapy, and so we're there to um, be at a service for our families, and Mm -hmm. and I think that. Disagreeing in a professional way is okay, but I, I look at it as we can always meet in the middle, no matter what. Yep.
0: Yeah, and and so I mean, we've we've heard like uh, obviously this helps with the client relationship. This helps with the overall outcome for the patient that you're working with and that child. It helps with their prognosis for them being able to to be as independent as we're trying to be able to create opportunities and and really help with their development. What, what does this do for that clinician who's actually practicing the skill of compassion? Yeah, I
1: think that, I think that this is, um, one that I'm particularly even more interested in is really disseminating this compassionate ABA to fellow, uh, clinicians, right? Um, uh, there's a, a BCBA, named Dr. Megan Miller. She's really part of the do better collective. And she talks a lot about this is that, um, we're not really taught within our coursework, um, this compassionate practice. Right. And, um, and a lot of up and coming clinicians might not be parents. Um, so it's, it's really hard to kind of bridge that gap. So I think that First of all, it should be taught in our coursework. If I could change the coursework, I would, I would advocate for that. Um, but I think, really, I think the science needs to start changing the lens of taking more of a perspective taking because, at the end of the day, we're still working with people, and so it's not, it's not you know pigeons pecking for food, right? Yep. And so I think that that's really more of the movement we need to go. Um, yep. Dr. Amanda Kelly, you know, she's um, known as Behavior Babe. She, I read a fantastic quote by her where she said, uh, we need to do better. We need to do a better job at teaching therapists to think like parents instead of training parents to act like therapists. And I was really moved by that quote because I think that that, if I could say, like, talk about, like, Clinicians taking more of, of a compassionate ABA approach. I would I would just show them that quote and say that's what I means. (laughs)
0: Yeah, so it's it it is interesting. I mean, you've you've talked about the coursework not really handling it, and I think that um, I, I I'm blessed to be at a at a clinical site where we have psychologists. So we have we have people with that training that can share that and and push it down so that others have the opportunity to learn, but. I guess that the question would come in is that you have fields like uh, pediatrics, where even understanding autism was not really part of a general peds process. So they made that mandatory in their medical training. Is, is that is that the route or are there other vehicles to get this teaching out there?
1: I, most definitely, I, I think there's um, several roads you can take to this, whether it's uh, um, definitely embedding it into the coursework for future clinicians. I think if it's agencies as well, taking that role on, I think that the board is trying to take that role on by addressing cultural competency, um, you know, and saying like, you, you, and, and changing some of the codes within the ethics code. Um, I, I think that this, that the board is moving in that direction because I probably sound like a broken record, but reform is happening, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I I think that that is, um, that it's going to happen. It's going to go there for sure. Um, but I, I think that for people who are already BCBAs now, it's doing their due diligence as well. And, and taking more continuing education units on being a compassionate and curious behavior analyst, you know, it's, I think that we're kind of trained and conditioned um, in the process to, Oh, put your BCBA hat on. You're a scientist, but I still say at the end of the day, you're still working with individuals who are impacted no matter what. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you can't just take, you know, the emotion out of, you know, out of your practice. And yep. and I don't want to, you know, that's where I'm at too of saying, I, I don't want to not be compassionate. I don't want to be black and white because I do believe so much is in the gray.
0: Mm-hmm. And and the way you're describing ABA right now would be the way that I would be looking at, you know, this is good ABA. You're taking and you're personalizing your treatment and understanding. And whether that's cultural awareness, whether that's understanding the ecology, whether that's just being able to take a step back and, and understanding the perspective of somebody who's experiencing the events, is that that's, to me, good ABA. So if if we're in this bubble right now, and, and historically, maybe it wasn't always good ABA that was out there, is how, how do you battle that misinformation? Because you'll have people out there saying, well, ABA is this, and, and you know in your heart, no, I do ABA. I know what it should look like. So how do you battle that misinformation?
1: I think if you asked me that question a couple of years ago, my answer would have been, Oh, I say all sciences have skeletons in their closet, right? But now that you're, but you're asking me this now. And I, I say, I listen to what concerns, uh, anyone who, um, is bringing to me about ABA and, and yes, I know it's misinformation, but maybe some of it is based in not great ABA. You know, I've worked with families, um. One in particular, who didn 't have a great experience, and so that was forever in her mind of what ABA is right. Um, but all I can say to that is science is is progressive it ne- it always evolves there that 's mm-hmm. why it 's a science. So when I listen to parents um, or individuals who are having who are um, seeking treatment. I think listening is important. Say, I hear you. I, I'm sorry if that happened to you. I want to do better. How can I help you? Mm-hmm.
0: And, and to, to go back to your initial point um, from previously is that the education and training that we're delivering is so vital, is that an experience is what somebody felt. It's what they went through. So if we are not focused on giving and empowering clinicians to do it the right way, most then different. that's going to it's going to continue to kind of live through this this cycle of no well I got good clinicians bad clinicians some trained not trained is that there's got to be consistency in how we're approaching it as well and I think that we're on the same page as far as well it's it's hard to it's hard to stand up something unless you're doing the work to make sure that everybody has the skill set to do it
1: and and I think that's a perfect way to describe it right is that I Um, you know, saying that I want to do better. I don't want to um, perpetuate that stereotype or continue that type of misinformation. Mm -hmm. And really I've kind of been taking more of like the quote, bad ABA out of my, um, out of my language and really just kind of saying, this is what applied behavior analysis is. And this is, and, and this is what it can help you do. And it really goes down to that. It's, it's the science of behavior. That's what it Mm -hmm. is. I mean, I love that ABA is stretching to, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy and really working more in, you know, different profiles of individuals. And so I think that that just, and it, it shows its power of that. It's, it's truly a science of behavior mm-hmm. on every you know, scale. So it's, yep. it's been wonderful to kind of really show that as well, that when misinformation um, is brought to me or concerns have been brought to me of really showing the evolution and the progression of the science. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's really important to kind of say that we are a very young field. <laughs> and so that has been in the most uh, giving that type of information delicately as possible of like, we're, we're extremely young science, you know, when you compare us to psychology or philosophy, I mean, the years aren't there. So Mm -hmm. I think that that kind of helps to really, um, really show more of the evolution of the science as well, that because we're so young and how fast we've grown um, that that kind of helps ease the anxiety of people who have, um, brought concerns or misinformation to me when it comes to applied behavior analysis.
0: Yeah, and and ABA can be such a powerful vehicle for a lot of people and being able to achieve their goals and it's it's a service that when done right can really open up a lot of doors. But the families need to to advocate for themselves as well, I think. And so how do you how do you coach a family? How do you talk with a family to make sure that they're getting the compassionate care that they deserve through the processes? Are there words of advice that you'd be giving to a family to make sure that they feel empowered?
1: Well, I think that I probably would use more of the, um, (laughs) it's it's funny that I'm saying more of like the psychologist approach is how does that make you feel, right? You reframe the question back to them. Um, because I think that when you're listening to families and you're validating their concerns and, and what's meaningful for them and what outcomes they want and reframing it back to them, it's almost like they come to their own conclusion. Um, I think that when you're working with the family, they want help. They, they want you there. So I think the validation is so important and reframing their what they're already saying back to them. Um, so that they're heard. So there's not necessarily a particular script that I would use because I I feel like it's it's so much more organic when I'm talking to a family because every family's um, their outcome of treatment and what they want is individualized to them and the and the patient.
0: Yeah, and and but I, I would imagine that there's there's a level of self-empowerment or uh, a level of uh, giving the family the right to have Mm self-compassion that's so important in this treatment process that, you know, no family should ever feel like they can't have a voice in treatment and that they need to advocate for that at the same time. So if they're running into this with a clinician, you don't have to put up the wall. You don't have to say, or feel like you have to follow blindly. It's have that dialogue, share that feeling, that, that perspective, because that's going to create a better treatment environment.
1: Absolutely. Um, I, and I think that when you're, you know, regularly checking in with families and you're um, talking to them about um, how session went, how they're feeling, what, you know, how their weekend was even like, did you go to the grocery store? How was that kind of a thing? I think that that's you're you're already fostering that communication piece. Mm-hmm. I think that talking to families, though, um, and they and I've had families tell me where they've gotten stuck of like, yeah, this happened. We went to the grocery store, and I totally gave in. And it's valid. It's, it's okay. Like, it's yeah. okay. Hey, you didn't want a scene at the grocery store. I get it. You bought the candy bar. It's not a big yeah. deal. I, I just had a I work at a school district as well and I just had a parent email me um the first day of school and she said oh Christina it was a failure she didn't get she, we only made it to the office and she didn't get into the classroom um but she she didn't hurt herself she didn't hurt anybody else and I said mm-hmm. it wasn't a failure that was a yep. success you got to the mm-hmm. office great job she we engaged in no self interest behavior no aggression towards staff no aggression towards you that wasn't a failure you went home. Like you trusted your mom gut and you went home. And I think that we don't really have that type of language a lot of times with parents of saying like, no, you did what you felt was right at that moment mm-hmm. and that's okay. And I still stand on, you know, you don't always need to follow through. If it doesn't feel right, you say, okay, I'm I'm going to stop right now. Um, because I think that sometimes we don't we, or let me reframe this. We need to empower parents more of they know what is best and we're there to just guide. That's all, you know. Mm-hmm. And so validating that mom, um, you know, I, I think it was helpful because she emailed back immediately and said, thank you. <laughs> I feel so much better hearing that. And then the next day, she, you know, her daughter walked into class. So it's yeah. just because she felt empowered enough to say, okay, let's try it again. And okay. that's what it's all about.
0: And it, it's it's relieving to to know that we're all fallible, and it's important to celebrate those super small successes when they do occur, uh, so that we know that you know I'm capable. Maybe not all the time because I'm not perfect, but I'm capable, and I need to cut myself some slack occasionally as well.
1: And I do feel like that's what ABA intervention truly capitalizes on is small successes. Mm -hmm. We break down a behavior and we build it slowly one piece at a time. And that's what I love about this science is that what other therapy or intervention does that, right? We take small steps and we're true masters of shaping. And Mm -hmm. so really that's what it's all about of just um, taking, this is my goal. This is how we're going to get there little by little. And sometimes we fall backwards and that's okay because we keep trying. And I feel like if I could sum up ABA, that's truly to me, like what it's all about when we're working in intervention and treatment.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I appreciate everything that you've been able to share because I know that you've taken out of your vernacular, bad ABA. But what I will say is that <laughs> what you're describing in compassionate ABA is good ABA. So right. we can keep the good part in yeah, there. Right. We could take the bad out. And I think that we're on the same page. But tell me, Christina, is that I know that, that you have uh, an Instagram site and I know that you are involved with a nonprofit. Can you tell me a little bit about that, that work that you're doing?
1: Yes, so I am involved in a, an, a nonprofit um, called uh, Leap Institute, and we're really geared more towards providing, we provide various things, um, but right now we're really focusing on supervision scholarships for up and coming young clinicians mm-hmm. um, and really focusing more on this compassionate approach. Um, so we offer supervision scholarships to uh, young people who are clinicians in general who are seeking their supervision hours. As a fellow BCB, I'm sure you know that um, getting supervision is not easy. Um, It's quite a skill. It's it's not the easiest thing to go and get. Um, So we provide – we have small cohorts. We provide supervision for free. Um, And so we really target – you know, BIPOC, non-BIPOC, LGBTQ plus individuals, um, to create more of a diverse practice of applied behavior analysis. Um, cause I think that that's also something that the board is trying to address is the diversity issue. Um, we know that we work with, Diverse population of families, so clinicians should be just as diverse. So that's what we do at LEAP Institute. Um, We provide uh, supervision scholarships, and we're actually going to start providing mentorship to fellow BCBAs as well. Um, And the mentorship isn't a supervision relationship, it's you and I talking about a particular case that we're struggling with or needing to hear about. Um, Mentorship is huge. You know, my um, former supervisor who works at um, ABS is I consider him now my mentor, you know, and so, um, so it's really, that's really what we focus on. And it's really focusing on how to be a compassionate, diverse um, BCBA
0: well i mean i appreciate all that you're doing there and and it's helping the field but ultimately it's going to help the recipients of care so all that effort that you're putting in there and and one, and i do also thank you for sharing your passion today because it's having that voice and sharing that energy that's going to get other people excited about learning about and doing the same steps to to educate themselves. So thank you so much, Christina, yes, for coming on and, and chatting with us today. and um, we hope to have you back sometime soon as well because it sounds like you have so much to offer.
1: Most definitely, thank you for having me. This was like a lot of fun.
0: Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all of the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS. ABS is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting ABSKids, that's plural.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.